You remember that a few months ago we looked at Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon there on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, and the subject of Peter's sermon was the uh, life and the crucifixion and death and then the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was what we considered was the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord back in chapter 2. We're in the book of Acts in our Sunday school class, and that prompted me uh, to preach from that text back a few months ago. And we're still there and coming up to chapter 3. So I've been looking at chapter 3, and I decided that uh, uh, verses 1 through 10 here in chapter 3 uh, would be uh, a good uh, passage for us to take up this morning uh, in our time together. Now let me remind you just a little bit about the context. Acts chapter 1 is about the events immediately before the day of Pentecost, the chief event being the ascension of our Lord into heaven. That is one of the key moments of human and redemptive history when our Lord ascends into heaven to take up his place of authority at the right hand of God. Uh, there is an outline of the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8, which says that you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that is basically an outline of the book of Acts, chapters 2 through 7 uh, in Jerusalem, chapters 8 through 12 in Judea and Samaria, chapters 9 through 28 to the end of the earth. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 41 are an account of the day of Pentecost. Uh, this is the day that will forever change the world with the coming of the Holy Spirit in power and in dramatic fashion, ushering in the last days and the days of the Christian church. The age that starts on the day of Pentecost is our age. Uh, and the era that will continue into the last day and the consummation of all things. And note that this is a reality uh, that will be referenced to by Peter in his sermon here in chapter 3. Jesus is going to heaven. He is there now, and he will remain according to 321, chapter 3, verse 21. He will remain there until the time of the restoring of all things. And so that is the period that we're living in Today, we are living between the enthronement of Christ in heaven and the day that he will return to make all things right forever, a time that exploded on the scene of sober history on the day of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 through 47 in chapter 2 uh, give a general description of the kind of things that are going on in Jerusalem and in the church immediately following Pentecost. And then we come to chapter, chapters 3 and 4, which is the next section of this book. I want you to note two statements with me at the end of chapter 2. Look at the end of verse 43, and it says this, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And then look down to the beginning of verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. Now, those two statements that we see there were general statements at the end of chapter two. Uh, we're going to be given. We're going to be given in chapter three in our text this morning in verses one through ten. We're going to be given uh, a very ex, ex, 
a very detailed account of the most significant of these events that are being described here by this language. Many wonders and signs were being done. Day by day, they were attending uh, the temple. Now, this, this event that happens in verses 1 through 10 is extremely important because it is going to lead to the sermon that is going to be in chapter 3, Peter's sermon that he's going to preach, verses 11 through 26. It is going to lead to the, to the arrest of the apostles, chapters four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. It is going to be this crisis that comes from this arrest that leads to the powerful prayer for boldness that we see in chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. And then the effects of this powerful preaching and witness are summarized in chapter 4 and verses 32 to the end of the to the end of the chapter. So in chapters 3 and 4, we see two things that will be a theme throughout the early days of the church and will continue to be two important realities in the life of the church right up until this very day. The church will triumph through the power of the gospel and the church will suffer persecution because of it. And that was true then and that is true uh, for us today. The key event that triggers the unfolding of all these things is what happens in our text this morning in verses 1 through 10. Let's read these verses. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, and they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Now verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now there are three main characters in this story, and the first two are brought to our attention here in verse 1. Here we first see Peter and John. Note that they are going up to the temple. Now, there are two words for temple in the New Testament. One refers to the sacred sanctuary itself. That is the holy place and the holy of holies, the temple proper. But our verse and the word, word that's most commonly used for temple refers to actually the temple area, the temple precincts, the entire area, including the courtyards around the temple. Now, the temple itself, if you recall, has... It is a structure that has two portions. It has the Holy of Holies in the back, 
Only the high priest enters that portion of the temple and only him just one time per year on the Day of Atonement. In front of the Holy of Holies, there is the holy place. In the holy place, only the priests are allowed to enter and they go in there daily doing their priestly service. Now, immediately outside of the temple building itself, there is the court of the priests where the altar and the laver for various washings is, and a place to hold the animals for sacrifice. Now, in the very front of this area, there is what is called the court of Israel, and only Hebrew men are permitted to go into this area. There is a wall and gate that separates these inner areas from what is called the court of the women, and only Hebrew women are allowed to enter into this outer court. At the entrance to the court of the women is this gate that's referred to in our text, the beautiful gate, the gate that separates all the Gentiles from the inner areas of the temple, the temple precinct, the temple area, where only Jewish people are permitted to come. At the entrance of the court, where this beautiful gate is, the Gentiles uh, can come no further. They're not able to enter past the beautiful gate. Now, our verse says that at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. in the afternoon in our time. You remember that the Jewish day goes from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m., not from midnight to midnight, and so their time is basically six hours Uh, different from ours. And there were three times of prayer every day at the temple. There were morning prayers in the temple while sacrifices were being offered. There were the evening prayers, again, while sacrifices are being performed. And this is the 3 p.m. prayers to which Peter and John are going now. The final prayers are at the end of the day at 6 p.m., at which time there are No sacrifices offered. And so it's the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and it's significant to this scene for this reason. It is the busiest time of the day uh, in the temple area. The question may be asked, why are Peter and John going to the temple? Well, the most obvious answer would be that they're going there to pray. But I suggest that just as important is the opportunity to engage with religious, religiously minded people through witnessing and preaching. If you would look over at chapter 5, here in Acts verse 12. And we read this. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico, which is inside the temple area. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then skip down to verse 42. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so they're going into the temple every day. And they are, while they're there, they are teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. I would suggest that that is why They are going there here uh, in our text. Now, many commentators on this verse make this observation. Back in Luke chapter 10, we're told that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out 
ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus from the beginning established a pattern of missionary outreach whereby his witnesses go out two by two. And here we see these two close companions going to preach the gospel in this pattern of ministry. Peter and John going out together to preach. They are heading to the temple at the time of the evening sacrifice to tell Israel of the once for all sacrifice for sin. Now another observation about Peter and John. Here they are going to the temple together. This is Peter, who just a few short weeks before had betrayed the Lord and abandoned him. And here is his companion, John, who we know stayed with Jesus because we see him at the crucifixion where Jesus speaks to him from the cross concerning the care of his mother. We see these two friends together here in Acts, two very different people, Peter, impetuous, John, serene, they supplement and enhance each other as they live together uh, in the gospel. And these two are now going as one to preach to lost Israel. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, as is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 2. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now here we have the third person in our story. He's described here, quote, a man lame from birth. Now you will remember that Luke has a profession. He is a physician. He mentions details that indicate his particular interest in medicine and health. Now here he uses the common word lame, which literally means to be deprived of a foot and thus means to be crippled or unable to use your feet, unable to walk. Over in chapter 4, verse 9, this person, the same person, is referred to as a crippled person. The word crippled is used. And that word crippled means literally to have no strength. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, while we were still weak, while we were still with no strength, no power, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's the word that we have in 4.9 to describe this man. Now Luke makes the point that this man was handicapped from birth. Now there are many reasons for a person to be crippled through disease, through accident, but this man's condition was congenital. He was, he was born lame. Never in his, in his entire life has he ever stood on his own two feet unaided. He has never had the experience, not even once, of the simplest things like walking down the street, something that we just take for granted without even a thought. Note in our verse that he was being carried. He has never stood, never walked, never ran, never jumped. He has always had to be carried from place to place by others. And this was something that his family and friends, we're not told exactly who it is, that they were required to do for him, we need to remember that in those days there was no welfare, no disability, no social programs, no charitable organizations, no safety net for people. People who did have a disability were just utterly dependent on friends and family to take them to a place where they could beg to meet their daily needs, and begging was basically their profession, their job, their occupation. 
Note the next statement in our verse. Whom they lay daily at the gate. Now, many of us are caretakers for various people in various circumstances and various needs. It can be hard. It can even be a burden. It can, be, uh, it can take time and energy away from other important things. This man required long-term daily assistance. Think about having that responsibility uh, every day. And we have another detail about this man found in chapter 4, verse 22, where it says he was more than 40 years old. Chapter 4, verse 22. I suggest to you that this man was a fixture in the city for most of his 40 years. Uh, this is what he was doing every day, day after day after day, year after year after year. This is what others were having to do for this helpless man day after day and year after year. We know that he was well known to the people because our text says down in verses, in, verses 9 and 10 that they recognize him as that man that we're always seeing by the beautiful gate. Our verse then says, at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. They placed him at the gate separating the court of Gentiles from the court of the Jews because this was a dramatic, excuse me, this was a strategic location for him to beg alms. There would be a steady stream of traffic in and out of the temple. In particular, this hour of the day is the busiest time at the temple. The workday has just ended. Now, for us, that's 5 o'clock. Everybody knows that you walk, work stops at 5 o'clock. I wish, I wish that it was so. But uh, we all know that people get off of work at 5 o'clock. Well, in, at this time, it was 3 o'clock. That was the end of the workday in Israel. Many people were paid at the end of each workday. You know, we were paid uh, at the end of every week or maybe even the end of the month. Uh, but uh, at this particular time, people were given their money at the end of every day because they needed, uh, they needed their wages of the day to meet their needs of the day. Now, religiously minded people would have just left work, having just been paid, and they would be making their way to the temple. Now, in Judaism, the giving of alms had become a virtue that was expected to be done. And so you can see that this is the best time of day, the best location, and the most favorable circumstance for this man each day to be there as he begs. Now, as a side note, if you study this passage, uh, you will see that many debate about which of the many gates is being referred to by the term the beautiful gate. I suggest that the man himself is confirmation that the one that we have identified is the correct gate. And I say that because that which was unclean or was blemished was not permitted to enter into the temple. So just as the, the Gentiles could come right up to this point in the temple area but could go no further, I would suggest to you that this man also would not have been permitted to go any further into the temple complex. Now, this daily task was a difficult undertaking for those that had to help him. If you'll recall, the temple complex itself was elevated, referred to as the Temple Mount. It is ancient Mount Moriah. You may remember the words of Psalm 48. Psalm 48 says, The city of our God, 
his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, and it literally was elevated above the city, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. And there were also, in addition to the fact that they have to take him up to the temple, which is up the mount, but there's also a series of stairs leading up to the gates of the court of the Jews, because that level of the temple is higher than the court of the Gentiles. And so there's these steps that have to be mounted to bring this man up uh, to the entrance of the gate to the temple area. So a very difficult task for those that are helping him day by day. Now, temple, uh, Herod's temple was one of the marvels of the ancient world. All of the gates throughout the complex were huge and beautiful. But this particular gate was called the beautiful gate because it was covered with silver and gold. It was a symbol of wealth and opulence. And next to this symbol of wealth, they laid this poor beggar, the picture of poverty and need. And so it's just a, it's just a staggering con, uh, contrast between this gate that he's in front of, the beautiful gate, and this poor man. It would have been the hope of this man that many from the multitude of people passing by would have been moved by his pitiable condition to give him alms. The entrance to the temple was especially good because people going to worship to worship God, uh, we're more likely to remember his many commands to help the poor. We see this in the last statement of verse 2 where where we read that he is there to ask alms of those entering the temple. And during the time of the early church, being crippled meant that you were destined to live a life of poverty and begging. The giving of alms in the Old Testament and also for us today in the New Testament is a practice that God expects his people to do, and that is why this lame man is there. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Literally seeing them, he begins to ask them for alms. He assuredly has a well-practiced routine. He has done this thousands and thousands of times. It is just rote for him. It is automatic. He's just doing his thing as they approach towards the gate. They are just faceless people walking in among the crowd. But then something very unexpected happens. Verse 4, And Peter directed his his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Now, the New American Standard uh, translates that term, fixed his gaze on him. Now, the root of this word is the word strain. It's an intense word. It is to stare right at him. They fastened their eyes directly on him. Now, think about the dynamics of begging. What is the most obvious thing that you avoid? in a begging situation. It's direct eye contact. We don't look directly. It is a universal reaction to begging, to not look directly at the person that is begging. Eye contact is the opposite to the normal reaction. And so this man is used to seeing people look the other way, to walk past, just ignoring his calls. 
Not only do these two men look directly at him, they command him to look at them. And it means more than just look, this command they give him. This is a word that has the connotation of perceive or discern. Look and pay attention, they're saying. Be alert and look at us. They're commanding him. Verse 5. And he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What are they doing? What they are doing is, is arresting his full attention. And why do you think that is? He thinks that they're going to give him money. You can imagine him sitting there thinking that this is going to be a huge payoff for him. These guys are serious. Why else would they look at him? Why else would they start to talk to him? But verse 6, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, we can just imagine that surely this man's heart initially just sunk when, they hear the, when he hears the words, I have no silver and gold. We don't possess silver and gold, uh, Peter is saying. And Peter's words, rise up and walk. Is that just a cruel joke? To this man. Peter and John don't have money, but they have something that no amount of money in the world can buy. And this is what they are about to give this man. Clearly, Peter and John are being prompted and guided by the power of the Holy Spirit. They know that God is getting ready to do something to this man, and so they command him in the authority and power of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Messiah, to rise up and walk. Now, what is the obvious problem with telling a lame man to stand up and walk? Well, the obvious problem is, is he doesn't have any power or ability to stand up and walk. He could never obey this command. For 40 long years, this has been proven uh, to be true about this man. But let me remind you that deliverance is always through the power of God alone. One last observation about verse 6. Jesus must have passed this man many, many times. And the man certainly knew who Jesus was. He may have heard him teaching and talking there in the temple area. He would have known exactly who Peter was referring to when he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This man would have known who Jesus was. Now let me just share with you an interesting historical side note to this verse. In the 1200s, the great medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II when the latter was counting out a large sum of money. You see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. Truly, Holy Father, was the, pride, was the reply. Neither can she now say rise and walk. And so there's a real question there in that interchange between Thomas Aquinas and the Pope about whether the church had advanced or declined in its riches. I suggest that that answer uh, should be obvious to us. 
Look at verse 7. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter takes him by the hand and he does. And as he does, God does this incredible work in this man. The power was Christ. The hand was Peter's. What we are seeing is a demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. Now, this is not a gentle, a gentle word. He seizes him and he pulls him up. And immediately, our verse says, he doesn't totter around, he doesn't stumble, but immediately, our verse says, his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, this expression is a complex of medical terms showing Luke's interest in medical detail. Now, Luke very well may have interviewed this man in his research for the book of Acts and thus was familiar with the specific details. Note something very important for us in this action by Peter. He does something that we could say uh, is not rational. Obviously, this man cannot stand, but he reaches out and he pulls this man up. I suggest that we should learn something here. Peter knows that God uses means to accomplish his purpose. God uses human means to even accomplish his purposes of grace. He uses human means even when human means alone cannot accomplish what we are trying to do. I suggest that God wants us to go to the spiritually lame around us and to tell them to walk and to extend and to extend any help and aid that we can uh, to help them to stand. If there's anything that we can do for them, we should do it. We should be telling our children constantly to rise up and walk. We should be reading to them, asking them questions, giving them discipline and instruction, taking them by the hand and bringing them to church and anything else that will draw them towards Christ. No one will walk unless God performs a miracle. But I suggest to you that we must not have our hands tied because of our limitations. We must command and assist and then trust God to do the work. Verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And not only does he rise up, he leaps up, stands steady and erect, and begins to walk around. And as he realizes what has happened, he begins to leap, to jump up and down, and to praise God. Suddenly, this man is the recipient not of someone's charitable donation, but of the power of the gospel and salvation found in Jesus Christ. Look down in our chapter here, in verse, uh, chapter 3, down to verse 16. This is part of Peter's sermon. And he says this, And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It is clear that this man has been given the new birth and faith along with his, his physical healing. This man who has lived off the generosity of almsgivers all of his life is now living through uh, the transforming power 
of the gospel that will change his life forever. Imagine the life of just sitting there day after day, unable to move unless someone comes uh, to pick you up. And then what this man could only dream about happens suddenly to him because of the grace and the power of the resurrected Christ. Verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. All the people see this man jumping and shouting and praising God. You can just imagine the scene. Here they are in the quiet, serious, religious place inside the temple. Sacrifices are going on there. It's very sober and serious. The prayers, the evening prayers are going on right now as they're entering into the temple area. And suddenly, there's this commotion. What do you think everybody in the temple area is going to do? They're all going to start to look around. What in the world is that noise? What is going on? And so they start to look around, and they see, they begin to see uh, that what is happening is this man is walking and jumping and leaping and praising God right there in their midst in the temple. Verse 10 says, And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. This man was known by everyone. There was no opportunity for them to misunderstand what is going on. They see him every day, year after year, a fixture at the gate of the temple. There could not be a more dramatic scene. Note the providence of God in this picture. God has been etching this man into the regular temple experience of masses of worshipers for years, probably decades. God has prepared Jerusalem for this miracle, to see this miracle. And God has prepared this man, crippled from birth, for this miracle. So that when it happens, it will be beyond dispute and beyond debate. And it will be known by everyone. They know this man. They know his crippled condition. It is a miracle of gigantic proportions played out, played out uh, before this largest possible audience in such circumstances that the significance of it cannot be missed. This is confirmed by the very last statement in our text. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word wonder means to be stunned by what you see or hear, to be dumbfounded, to be utterly amazed, to be astonished. Uh, Luke actually uses this word two other times. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 36, where Jesus commands a demon to be silent and to come out. And the people are amazed, and this word is used, they are amazed, they're stunned at his power and authority over the unclean spirits. And he, he uses it again in Luke chapter 5, verse 9, where after Peter has fished all night, not catching anything at all, he is told by Jesus to let down his nets. You remember the story, Peter begrudgingly obeys, and he puts the nets down, and you know what happens? The nets are filled to the point of breaking. They are pulling all the fish into the boat. They call another boat over there, and both of the boats are about to sink because they're overfilled with the catch. 
They are filled to the point of sinking. Peter and his men, and also James and John who were there, were astonished. This is the word. So much so that they leave everything and follow him, and they don't go back to fishing ever again. They were filled with wonder, our text says. And then the other word is amazement. This word appears only here in the New Testament. It is the Greek word ecstasis. We get our English word ecstasy from this word. It can mean something like to be in a dream or a trance. But in a case like this miracle, the novelty and the uniqueness of it, it means that your mind is blown. It would be like a saying, man, that blew my mind. That's the idea behind this word, to be overcome with wonder and emotion. And sometimes it can even have the connotation of also of fear. And so they are filled with amazement at what happened to him. This man was filled with uncontrollable joy. He is dancing around in their midst. They all know him. They're shocked to see this one that they have seen for years and years by the temple gate. And they are filled also, and they're caught up uh, in the wonder and the joy of what has happened to him. Let's make a few observations about this text. The apostles and their message are authenticated by these signs and wonders that accompany their ministry and their preaching. Why should anyone listen to these men? Why should they listen to uh, their message that is being preached by them? It is because these men have been validated by the supernatural acts of God. Note that throughout the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, that miracles always had spiritual significance and served to prove that these men were God's men speaking God's words. Ignore them and what they say at your own peril. Another observation is that ministry in the temple will lead to persecution. Remember that the apostles were from Galilee. Galilee is a backorder place, remote and far away. The people there are backward and unimportant. Preaching and ministry there could be tolerated. But now the gospel and its power has been brought in the, in the most in-your-face way into the very center of established religious life, and it cannot be allowed to stand. And a persecution is going to immediately begin for the church because of this miracle that has happened here with this man. A few theological lessons that we can learn from this is, first of all, that the church is the true Israel. God told Israel back in Deuteronomy 15, 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. There should have not been poor and needy in Israel that were forced to sit and beg alms in this fashion. Yet here he is right at the gate of the temple, a testimony to the failure of Israel to meet their responsibility to take care of the poor. But who is it that is stepping up to the plate and demonstrating that they are taking care of the poor? You may remember at the end of Acts 2 that they are giving to any that have need, verse 45. And now in this event, they are making a dramatic statement that the old Israel is impotent to take care of the needs of the poor and declaring the power of the new Israel to meet the needs of people, both body and soul. 
Another observation, the temple is mentioned six times in this passage. The temple is to be the place of God's presence and God's power. It is the place where the sacrifices are made. But the message here is that the real temple, excuse me, the real temple, Jesus has come. He has made the true sacrifice that can restore fallen, crippled, sin-sick man. And now the ascended Christ has transformed his people into a living temple that is indeed the dwelling place of the power and presence of God. The irony is that as the apostles approach the temple, they are bringing the message of the true temple. And as they approach the sacrifices that are going on there, the message of the final sacrifice for sin. They demonstrate clearly in this lame man that the new has come, the shadow has been fulfilled and eclipsed, and that the old is passing away. The miracle didn't happen because he was at the gate of the old temple. The miracle happened because he was at the gate of the living temple of Jesus Christ. Another lesson, this miracle demonstrates that Jesus Christ is, is restoring what is fallen and lame and ruined. That is what Peter will preach in the sermon that follows. The gospel says to sinners that there is one with power to overcome your weakness, the atrophy of your soul, the brokenness that is there. And surely as this man walked, Christ can make the, surely, the spiritual lame and crippled walk as well. The gospel calls for us to believe in him, this one that can make the spiritually dead and lame and crippled alive and able to walk. And note this miracle sends us another message, a very important message. We will be saved body and soul. A day is coming when every physical limitation, every disease, Every condition, every injury will be made whole. Now, we pray all the time for our physical needs. Many of those prayers have not been answered yet. Many of them will not be answered in this life. But I would suggest to you they all will yet be answered on the last day. It will be a day of the restoration of all things, Acts 3.21. And on that day, every physical infirmity, every uh, thing about our bodies, and the, the, the list is long, uh, that is wrong and in need of help, will be made right on the last day. We will be saved body and soul. It is a complete salvation. And then note the picture of salvation in this miracle. This man is not thinking about salvation. He's thinking about money. And just see how God interjects himself into the life of this man. Do you want to see what sovereign grace looks like? Look at this lame man brought to healing and salvation by the act of God. And then one last observation about this event. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, we read these words. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious, uh, anxious heart, be strong, fear not. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then we have this, these words. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, describing the salvation that will come with the coming of the Messiah. Peter performs this miracle so that right at the heart of Israel, in the temple itself, the lame are leaping like deer for all to see. It is a demonstration that the kingdom of Messiah is here. And here is the proof. And here's the proof for us as well, for us to see it and to believe. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.